Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 14th of April, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're hoping we're going to be joined by Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Now, over the years, UK Column has from time to time opened the news, stating that we believe we have critical information to bring to the public in the United Kingdom. Today is one of those days. And we're going to open with the extraordinary testimony of an NHS England whistleblower speaking about what is really happening around the government's vaccination programme. We invite all of our listeners to listen extremely carefully to every single word this extremely brave lady says. Dear Brian, as you can see from a photo of my NHS ID, to verify that I work for the NHS, can I please ask that you and UK Column not reveal my identity, my job title, or the health board that I work for? And as I am a senior nurse, it is appropriate to refer to me as such. But I, ca I really cannot afford for my health board to be revealed, as it would take no time for me to be identified, and I have already been threatened with losing my job. I report directly to the line manager who sits at executive level within my board and my card is already marked. I, have, I am directly involved with the vaccination programme for my health board at senior nursing management level. I'm essentially a policy writer and I'm responsible for the prescribing documents that allow healthcare staff to administer the jabs. They are not vaccines and as such I can't refer to them as this. I have been in my current post directly responsible for all our vaccine policies and prescribing documents for Sears. I work in tandem with our public health team and I know a great deal in regard to vaccines and their use. I have also worked previously as a research nurse and I know how to critically appraise journal articles and trial protocols. I am contacting you at UK Column in response in response to the video, No Smoke Without Fire, Part 2, in particular concerning a question you put to Debbie Evans. You asked Debbie what she believed was going on in regard to medics, nurses and carers who were involved in the vaccine programme and whether or not they had knowledge of the risks around the jabs, but were carrying on regardless, or were they not aware as a result of how they are trained nowadays? I would agree with part of Debbie's response in so much as everyone involved in the job programme is simply listening to senior management and there is very little, if any, questioning around the whole issue of the jabs. I started to ask questions in regard to the safety of the jabs before the MHRA gave their emergency use authorisation last year. I knew I would be expected to be directly involved in the rollout of the jabs in our health board and I had been reading the trial protocols and their interim analysis data were published. I could see very early on that there were flaws in the design of the Pfizer trial and for all the jabs there was little to no safety data made available. I could see that the claims of the pharmaceutical companies as to the efficacy of the jabs was poetic licence and, as far as I'm concerned, was designed to mislead. Because my work has centred on vaccines for the last few years, I also questioned the speed with which these jabs came into use. 
and the fact that no one was questioning the outcomes of the numerous animal trials that had been undertaken over the previous 18 years for SARS and MERS. Initially, I refused to have any involvement and undertake my usual tasks in relation to these new jabs. However, I was quickly threatened with redeployment to the planned vaccine centre, where I would be expected to administer the jabs. I definitely did not want to be in a position where I was expected to inject anyone. So I reined in my objection, but continued to refuse to have my name appear on any of the paperwork. At every turn, I have challenged and questioned the need for these jabs in any cohort other than the plus 65 years and the clinically at risk. Even then, I questioned the lack of safety and efficacy data. I challenged the fact that our health board had adopted a policy of not providing the patient information leaflet, PIL, to all JAB recipients. The PIL should always be made available to every recipient in a timely manner so that they may read through it in order to make a truly informed decision and provide consent to receiving the JAB. Yet it became policy that no one was to offer this to recipients unless they had requested it. However, lay people have no concept of the PIL and are unaware that this is supposed to be provided to them. Conversely, however, it is written in the protocols that the healthcare professionals must use to authorise them to administer the job that the PIL must be made available to the recipient. Similarly, I challenge the fact that the documentation used by the healthcare professionals as a checklist to be gone through with every recipient did not include that the recipient must be informed that they are taking part in an ongoing clinical trial. At every turn and where I can, I have constantly questioned and confronted my executive level line manager, my public health colleagues and my peers, some of whom I have worked with for over 10 years now. As a result of my non-conformity, I have been labelled an anti-vaxxer and conspiracy nut, even though both my children have been fully vaccinated. And I myself, whilst working clinically, had my hepatitis vaccination. I am not anti-vaccine at all. I have been excluded from certain meetings. I've been openly ridiculed and laughed at in others. And most recently, I was told I needed to watch my step as when cost-saving measures are required later this year, I may just find myself surplus to requirements. So Debbie is correct. Those delivering the programmes and injecting the public are simply following the orders relayed to them. And for the most part, they are doing so naively in the belief that they can trust the rhetoric dictated by senior management. However, there is total awareness of the issues and risks involved with, the, with these jabs at senior level within the NHS and not just in my board. I've spoken with colleagues from other health boards who report the same issues. When I last faced up to my manager, I asked why they were content to be taking part in what amounted to, as far as I was concerned, to genocide. Their reply was chilling and left me feeling both disgusted and despairing. They agitatedly replied that we all have a job to do and a part to play and we need to just 
put up, shut up and get it done. It was made very clear to me government were leaning heavily on health boards to ensure not only compliance with the JAB programme, but that the boards met the targets set by the government. Brian, I have tried to recruit colleagues to the cause. I've had numerous conversations with nurses who have years of experience working in the NHS and who are also aware that things simply aren't right, but always to no avail. I am often told that it's futile and there's no point in speaking up or speaking out as they, being management, just won't listen. Then there are those who are aware of what's going on and simply can't take the stress of being involved. They have gone off work long-term sick in their droves. There are also very many senior nurses who have taken early retirement over the last few months, all of them citing the current situation with the jabs and the whole COVID debacle as the reasons they just had to get out. You mentioned, Brian, when talking with Debbie, and I have heard similar sentiment elsewhere, that those NHS staff who have knowledge of what's taking place and who are not speaking out are complicit in the atrocity. Some even go so far as to demand nurses like me speak out as a moral duty and they have no sympathy for us if we, stand, if we end up facing Nuremberg-style trials. But I have a mortgage to pay, two young children and all the bills for the whole house to cover after my partner was made redundant last year. I can't go public. If I did, I would most certainly never work in nursing again. And with the current climate of unemployment, what chance would I stand of getting a job, never mind one that would pay enough to cover our outgoings and keep a roof over my children's head? I hate my job. I am currently ashamed to be a nurse. And every day I work for the NHS, I feel greater despair and loathing. You mentioned GPs specifically to Debbie and I thought I would relay a conversation I had just yesterday with a GP at one of our surgeries delivering the jabs. The GP in question knows of my direct involvement with the board's jab programme and had questioned me in regards to the forthcoming Moderna jab that we are to begin administering in April. Through the course of the conversation I learned that the GP had taken the Pfizer jab herself Aghast, I asked her, was she crazy, considering the jab contained PEG, polyethylene glycol, also known as antifreeze? The GP didn't know the jab contained PEG. In fact, the GP didn't know any of the excipients in the jab at all, as they had never read the PIL or full prescribing documentation. I challenged this, stating that they couldn't fully obtain consent from their patients if they themselves weren't aware of the contents of the PIL. I then asked, were they informing their patients that they were taking part in a clinical trial? At this point, the colour drained from the GP's face as they rather sheepishly replied that they weren't. They were simply asking if the patient was happy to be followed up over a two-year period for research. In all honesty, Brian, the GP didn't even know the jabs weren't approved or that they were still in clinical phase three trials. Tragically, this GP's lack of knowledge in regard to the jabs isn't rare. 
Again, recently, I had a conversation with an NHS consultant who took the Pfizer jab. They too didn't know they had taken part in a trial or that the jabs weren't approved. Brian, if consultants, GPs, nurses and pharmacists within the NHS aren't aware of this, how on earth can we expect the public to know? Lastly, I disagree with Debbie on one point. She stated that she felt sorry for her NHS colleagues who were essentially being set up. I disagree. My NHS colleagues have forsaken their duty of care, broken their code of conduct, Hippocratic Oath, and have been brainwashed just the same as the majority of the UK public through propaganda and predictive programming. When I trained as a nurse, it was ingrained in me to question everything, to never accept being told because we've always done it or because I'm telling you to. I learned that we were advocates for patients and it was our duty to protect them at all costs. And I learned to look for the evidence behind every treatment or medicine I was to provide a patient. Therefore, I am complicit too. Although I know about the safety issues and have tried repeatedly to get through to management and colleagues, I have failed. I can't recruit a single NHS colleague, be they nurse, doctor or pharmacist, to stand with me and speak out. I have gone to the union to look for them to support me, but predictably they told me I had no real case and it wouldn't be worth pursuing. As a lone voice, I will not be heard but would lose my job, 23-year nursing career and my nursing registration. Of that, I have no doubt. For now, I am resigned to remain in my post. I will continue to be defiant and to challenge everyone at every opportunity to try to wake them up and see if they would be willing to side with me. If a time ever came when this genocide came to light, and if I ended up on trial testifying against those in positions of power who could have affected the outcomes, I would not hesitate to give evidence. I will also accept my fate should I too be found to have been duplicitous in this horrid act of human annihilation. I do not fear that day, Brian. Indeed, I pray for it to come. Well, what... Uh... What just an incredible statement by that extremely brave lady. And of course, she raises a great number of points which the public in UK should be clamouring at every single MP to answer. If I just recap very briefly on some of the key things that she said, no safety data produced, no patient information leaflets so that patients can make uh, proper informed decisions about being vaccinated. The fact that not even the doctors were aware that what was taking place was an experimental trial of vaccines. And of course, she's threatened. She knows that uh, she runs the risk of losing her job for simply speaking out. So here we see the hounding of the whistleblowers, anybody inside the NHS telling the truth. Um, she's talking about Nuremberg trials. And of course, she should be talking about that because this is the severity of what we're dealing with. She talks about the facts that the patients are not getting the care and attention that they really need and should be getting under the NHS. 
She's talked about that lock, lack of knowledge by the GPs, and she's ending by talking about genocide, the words of a person with great experience inside the NHS is talking about the British government's vaccine, uh, COVID-19 vaccine programme as genocide. What more could we possibly say on this, Mike? Uh, I don't know. But my first question, though, is what's the justification for the programme in the first place? Um, and uh, will, we, will we move on to talk about I, that? I, I think so, because I, I think we'll let that testimony sink in with our audience today. And of course, this is just one person. She, uh, she's had trouble with uh, getting support, but we know that a lot of support is coming forward in the NHS. And I'll mention that again in a minute. Um, so this is the question. What is actually the justification uh, for the mass vaccination programme in the UK at the moment? Now, The Telegraph has this article today. A quarter of COVID deaths not caused by virus. New figures show. Um, and they're saying calls to speed up roadmap. This is the, the roadmap to take us out of lockdown as 23% of recent deaths are people dying with disease rather than from it. Now, maybe this language has been used in the mainstream press before, but I haven't really noticed it. Uh, it's really only uh, people questioning the lockdown narratives that are asking about uh, or using terms like with the disease rather than from it. Um, so I just wanted to challenge this 23% figure uh, a little bit. Uh, and to do that, I'm going to go to the UK Columns article here written by Ian Davis. Fantastic article. I do recommend if you haven't read it yet, do so. A Deceptive Construction, Why We Must Question the COVID-19 Mortality Statistics. And I'm just going to pull some of the details out of that, uh, just a couple of the, the details out of this. Uh, mortality risk disproportionately affects men. In 2018, the average age of death for men was approximately 80 and 83 for women in England and Wales. The average age of COVID-19 death is just over 82. So when we look at the uh, mortality distribution, there's no observable impact from COVID-19. So the question we've been asking from the beginning is, where is the pandemic? Uh, and the point that we've making, been making from the beginning is that the only figures that can't be fudged are the all-cause mortality figures. And if you say that the average age of a COVID death is something similar to what we have seen, uh, from every other cause of death, then Brian, uh, the where is the pandemic? It doesn't seem to be there. Uh, Sage, as the article goes on, Sage assessed the UK main operational false positive rate for RT-PCR tests to be 2.3% of all conducted tests. The government say they've conducted just over 118 million tests, therefore, of, uh, and of which uh, 4.3 million were positive. So let's just do a little bit of maths. 2.3% of 118 million is 2.7 million uh, positive tests. Uh, that's the false positive tests out of 4.3 million positive tests in total. That's 67% of positive tests were false positives. And if we are therefore claiming that we have X number of deaths resulting from COVID-19 uh, from people that have tested positive through a PCR test 20, within the 28 days prior to their death, or in some cases uh, within 60 days of prior to their death, and 67% of those are false positives, then those people, did they have symptoms? We don't know. They certainly probably didn't die of COVID-19. Let's move on. Deaths from all these other conditions, heart diseases below five-year average, cerebrovascular disease below five-year average, malignant respiratory neoplasm below five-year average, chronic lower respiratory disease below, Influenza and pneumonia deaths below the five-year average. 
and the list could go on, but so apparent reduction of 15,340 deaths from other causes. Was this because COVID was killing them first or was it because uh, in fact, uh, it, they were being their deaths, which fr were from these normal uh, types of illnesses were be ring sorry were being redefined uh, as as COVID. Um, so sorry, I've uh, duplicated that slide. Let's just remind ourselves what the uh, age standardized mortality situation is. Um, if we go back in this case to 1971 and we compare uh, the situation in 2020 with all those years prior standardized for uh, population growth and for uh, age distribution. Uh, and uh, we can see that 2020 was not a significant year in terms of uh, age standardized mortality going back that. In fact, you can take that graph right back to 1939 um, and the situation is the same. Um, and you can see that uh, 2020, in fact, was only the ninth worst year since the turn of the century. Um, so again, what justifies the lockdown, what justifies the mass vaccination program. And if we take that to the mortality statistics since uh, March 2020 and look at the Office for National Statistics information about where deaths have occurred and remind ourselves that last summer between say June and uh, September, um, that uh, we saw deaths below the five-year average in hospitals and in care homes, but not in people's homes. Um, because, well, why? We don't know the answer to that. We can suggest and we can argue and we can say that it was because they weren't getting treatment from the NHS. Uh, we believe that's the case. Uh, and uh, there's, but there's been no uh, actual study to demonstrate what the situation is. So we're saying that it's because they haven't been getting their NHS care. Uh, well, is there any evidence to support that? Yes, because this, well, this is from December, but uh, this was the Royal Co College of Surgeons of England saying more than 160,000 people waiting more than a year for hospital treatment. Uh, they're saying today's waiting time statistics show there were more than 160,000 patients waiting more than a year for planned hospital treatment in October 2020, the highest number since May 2008. Uh, they said the total waiting list now stands at 4.45 million. So people not getting their, uh, NH their support for, that they expect from the NHS. At the time, we reported Professor Neil Mortensen the Royal College of Surgeons is saying yet again those waiting time figures drive home the devastating impact COVID has had on wider NHS services. Well, no, it wasn't COVID. It was government policy and it was NHS management policy which reoriented the NHS towards something uh, which wasn't any worse than a uh, bad flu season. Um, and uh, as a result, NHS services have suffered uh, a devastating impact, at least treatment for people has had a devastating impact on people's lives. Uh, waiting lists for planned treatment were already having, uh, heaving when the virus first struck, he said. Um, and then just to finish this off, I want to highlight uh, this article just published today in The Spectator, COVID and the lockdown effect, a look at the evidence. Uh, this is uh, from a, a guy called Simon Wood, uh, and he's uh, talking about his, he's written an article about uh, his peer-reviewed paper, uh, Inferring UK COVID-19 fatal infection tra trajectories from daily mortality data were infections already in decline before the UK lockdowns. And he is arguing very strongly that in fact, um, the first lockdown was absolutely unjustified because COVID-19 infections were already falling at that stage. Um, and uh, so in, you can infer from what he is saying there uh, that therefore the majority of the deaths 
since April 2020 were caused by the effects of the lockdown, by the reorientation of the NHS to one particular task. And we've got to remind ourselves that the NHS, while we were saying all those headlines uh, during the winter of 2020 and 2021, uh, that the NHS was being overwhelmed by COVID patients, we have to remember that the NHS was only operating at 75% capacity because of their uh, social distancing and uh, COVID mitigations uh, in terms, so they had to reduce the number of beds. Uh, the government did not uh, re-establish the, the Nightingale hospitals in order to make up the shortfall because there was no need to make up the shortfall. Uh, the NHS has not been providing uh, support to people for illnesses other than uh, perceived COVID-19 um, and uh, therefore people have been dying. But none of this justifies a mass vaccination programme. But it's going ahead. Uh, and the government, of course, does not want the UK public to look at uh, the deaths. The post-mortems are not being carried out. The forensic toxicology, to forensic toxicology is not being carried out. The people are dying, but the government isn't talking about it. Mm. Um, which takes us to this. Well, this is, uh, I think, just appalling. This is The Guardian, of course, not dealing with the critical issues in UK, but going for what they think is a scoop because they can have a quick uh, um, a quick go at Matt Hancock. But here's the headline, two directors to step down at Suffolk Hospital hit by witch hunt claims. Pair leaving posts ahead of publication or review into search for whistleblowers at what they say is Matt Hancock's local hospital. And the reason for this is that he's friends with the trust chief executive, Steve Dunn, so um, apparently in 20, January 2020, a rapid review was ordered into claims of managing bullying at West Suffolk Hospital Trust, which the health secretary had to recuse himself from, step down from because of his friendship with the trust chief executive, Steve Dunn. Days before the review is expected to be published, Dunn emailed staff to announce that two of his colleagues on the board were due to stand down early. And if you get further into the article, you find that it's about this. Um, so, sorry, I'll bring it up. It's This is um, an operation where somebody died and a coroner concluded that errors in uh, uh, the care of the lady Susan had contributed to her death. This led to a search for the whistleblower, which health unions described as a witch hunt. So basically... Uh, they're demanding fingerprints to track down somebody who'd warned the public that there had been serious failures in the treatment of, of a woman who had died, a witch hunt in order to get that person. Well, The Guardian has, has decided to go for this article, but of course the real, art, the real subject The Guardian should be going for is the NHS's persecution of whistleblowers who were speaking out about the deaths or as a result of the vaccination uh, program. Well, people are coming forward, although the lady at the beginning of today, today's news was a little bit distressed that she said she couldn't get other people to support. Those people are coming forward to the UK column. And I can say that we are nearly overwhelmed now with contacts from people inside the system telling us uh, what's going on. We tweeted this out yesterday. A very big thank you to all the very brave at NHS UK whistleblowers who are now stepping forward to reveal what's really happening inside the NHS following the COVID-19 pandemic and what's taking place with the present vaccine adverse reactions. 
they merit huge thanks, praise, and a hug. And uh, that uh, got 1,100 uh, retweets. Uh, I'd also said it was wonderful that many nurses, medical and support staff are coming forward as they cannot continue to work a lie in NHS England. They're pressurised and threatened, which this lady clearly told us, with losing their jobs for speaking out. They're coming forward anyway. Great shame the doctors still lack the courage and morality of those uh, nurses. Now, in the clip, uh, the lady mentioned uh, this interview, which was No Smoke Without Fire Part 2, uh, where I was speaking with former NHS nurse Debbie Evans. And uh, this and the other series of No Smoke Without Fire have had now quite a, a substantial viewing by the public. So if you haven't seen that, we'd encourage you to go and have a look. Um, in the meantime, of course, the uh, vaccination programme being expanded now. So th this is uh, Matt Hancock's statement uh, saying the uh, Independent Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation has today published this yesterday, actually, uh, its final advice for phase two of the COVID-19 vaccination programme. In line with its interim advice, the JCVI has recommended an age-based approach with adults aged 18 to 49 prioritised in descending age order. So I believe it's over 40s, uh, 40 to 49 age group is the first lot in uh, to get the next batch. Uh, all four nations of the UK have agreed to follow the JCVI's recommended approach. Uh, the UK remains on course to meet the target to offer a vaccine to all those in the phase one priority groups by, by mid-April and all, all adults by the end of July. Uh, yes, well, what's happening alongside this is complete censorship. And thank you for the viewer that pointed out that the British Medical Journal article, which we highlighted a few days ago, has, uh, well, it's, had dis it's disappeared. So if you go to the BMJ to look for the doctor who was speaking out about what was happening around vaccines, uh, this notice comes up. Uh, this rapid response has been removed as it was being used to spread misinformation and was attributed in a misleading way on certain websites and social media. So the censorship comes in. This was the letter. Uh, and in this, a uh, qualified professional was talking about the failure to report the reality of the morbidity caused by our current vaccination programme within the health service and staff population. The level of sickness after vaccination is unprecedented, and so it goes on. Uh, there's more to it here. Uh, this is, is written by a professional. And look at the language, coercion and mandating medical treatments on our staff of members of the public, especially when treatments are still in the, quote, experimental phase are firmly in the realms of a totalitarian Nazi dystopia and fall far outside of our ethical values as the guardians of health. And instead of promoting these warnings, what does the British Medical Journal do? It suppresses and censors them. Well, we'd just like to give a big thanks to the World Doctors Alliance that's picked up on information that we're putting out. Um, this was sent through to us showing that uh, they are now circulating information from the UK column. And of course, they're also putting in their own very detailed analysis uh, from medical professionals around the world. This was also sent in to us that the US begins a study of allerging reactions from mRNA coronavirus vaccines, uh, proving COVID vaccine long-term safety studies have never been conducted. So it doesn't matter where we go, the information is coming through. 
And then if we look at what a local council is up to, and a big thank you to the viewer who sent this through to us, um, Lancashire County Council tackling misinformation around testing. Um, it's saying that concerning posts that are circulating on social media are suggesting that chemicals used in the lateral flow tests have a high risk of causing cancer. This is inaccurate and, harm, and harmful misinformation. Uh, extremely small quantities of ethylene oxide are used in the swabs for lateral flow tests, and this is well within national and international safety standards. Well, it might be small, but of course it depends how often the tests are being well, used exactly. and your body is being exposed. So this is disingenuous misinformation from Lancashire County Council, but they go on to crow that the government has secured a commitment from Facebook, Twitter and Google not to profit from this kind of material and to respond faster to, con uh, to content it flags for removal. Uh, but also it says the government um, is also sponsoring contact on social media channels and a range of news media outlets to provide information and advice to communities across the country. So that's the propaganda. But the dangerous point is, quote, legislation is also being developed in the UK to protect people online. And these will tackle dangerous dis misinformation. This is expected to be ready this year. Yeah, so that's the online, so-called online harms legislation, which, well, the government has been trying to get that uh, in place for over two years now. So we'll see what it says when it comes out. In the meantime, they're setting up various regulators and uh, getting buy-in from the social media companies, as that, uh, as that remark so suggests. The professionals who know what's going on, they're calling it genocide, and they're trying to speak out. They are hounded, bullied, forced out of their jobs. And anybody who reports the truth from statistics or documentary evidence uh, is going to be uh, censored by the government working hand in glove with the social media companies. Well, I'll just end this um, segment here because uh, we've got uh, a paper from Derbyshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust. This was sent to an individual inviting them for a vaccine. Uh, the thing which is so cynical about this is that the person has been identified uh, for this letter, come forward for a vaccine because you're vulnerable, not because they've got any physical health problems, but because they've got some mental health issues. So the government has locked people down for over a year, which has caused an unprecedented, unprecedented rise in mental health problems and difficulties. And then what happens next? The uh, NHS invites those people to come up, come and have a vaccine, uh, but of course they're not reporting the side effects of the vaccine, which include adverse psychiatric reports. This is like something out of a film we're reporting on, Mike. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, where does that take us to? Um, let's uh, head over to the continent uh, and welcome Alex to the program. Uh, what's the situation? What's uh, what's the situation uh, in? Sorry, I've forgotten where this is, Alex. Just tell us what this is about. Well, this is Zweites Deutsches Fernsehen, the German equivalent of the BBC, and uh, they are uh, funded by obligatory taxes. Uh, this piece has been picked up 
by Andrew Johnson's excellent site, checktheevidence.com. I strongly recommend people sign up to his very excellent newsletter. And so I went to look for the original. It's a Dutch footballer who plays in the German Bundesliga, Mr. Weghorst, uh, who's given an interview about various footballing matters. But in it, he gets grilled on why he dared to speak out against COVID jabs. Uh, by the way, I'm no longer going to be calling them uh, vaccines because uh, as far as I'm concerned, they neither pr provide immunity uh, nor stop transmission. And I don't see that anyone cl is claiming otherwise. So I'm going to say jabs from now on. Now let's go and have a look into more detail about what was said in this ZDF interview uh, just in passing. If people want the relevant three minute section in English, they can go to Wout Weghorst English subs on the important information channel. Uh, he was speaking in the Wolfsburg studio of ZDF. Uh, he was put on the spot in a quite a nasty way by the interviewer. Uh, who said that uh, in December 2020, he shared an Instagram post, and this was a great big sin for a footballer, to say, imagine a vaccine so safe, you have to be threatened to take it. For a disease so deadly, you have to be tested to know that you have it. Since then, says the interviewer, you have apologised for this post. Do you understand the large amount of criticism you received? And uh, Mr. Veghorst says, actually, I've not uh, apologised. This is a very important post. I'm calling attention to... Uh, research and people should make their own minds up. Next slide goes into a little more detail of the grilling. Here, This is typical of, I have to say, Dutch and German interviews, uh, continuing to ask, but why have you not apologised for a pending public sentiment? Do you distance yourself from the remarks? And uh, Weghorst is not uh, disconcerted by that. He says, well, actually, I've shared a link to a documentary going into the topic of the virus. Interviewer, yeah, but you basically said we all have to be forced into vaccinated. This is absolute nonsense. Do you still stand by this? And Veghorst, I think, takes the only sensible decision you can make when put on the spot by public broadcasters at this point. He says that I've made the best decision in the best interests of my family, my children and my girlfriend. People should decide what's best for them. And in closing, he uh, simply says, uh, well, when grilled again, interviewer, what decision have you made? He says, I've made the correct decision. What decision would that be? Answer, the correct one for myself. Uh, so uh, there we are, uh, a good example of a footballer uh, managing to stand up for himself there. Um, I think that takes us further into the context. Well, no, we'll, 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 we'll come back uh, to more in a minute. I, I think I just want to add to that, Alex, that uh, people who are speaking out at the moment are sticking, and I think quite right, rightly so, on this key point that if the basis of the administration of medicine or medical help is that the, the patient should be able to make an informed choice, then it's beholden on the government and the NHS to actually tell the patient or the potential patient um, what the benefits, if any, and what the risks are, the true risks are, of any medication. And this includes the vaccine. And so the uh, individual who spoke out at the beginning of today's news again uh, came up with this point that the, the, the real um, failure of the government here is that it will not tell the truth about the vaccine side effects. It will not tell the truth about adverse effects to the testing. And there's more to come out on that, which the UK column will be covering. So uh, we're not informing people of the risks. Why are we not informing people of the risks? Well, because of course the risks are considerably more dangerous than the government's propaganda would have us believe.
I think that's absolutely fair, Brian. And before we go on to a largely Europe-based segment, I'll mention in passing a stop press item, which is that uh, uh, with the help of Graham Moore, who goes by Daddy Dragon, he's having to re-establish his YouTube channel now in a very emotional and sincere update. He's reporting on another way in which, as he puts it correctly, the state is ordering lives to be taken in Britain. Uh, people can look at application number 18533-21 of the ECHR, it's a case entitled Parfit versus the United Kingdom. A five-year-old girl has had a family court order to take her uh, life support tube out. I know people often say, oh, stop uh, making heartrending appeals. These children can't stay alive. Uh, I think it would be good to look into this case in more detail before you say that. But uh, Graham Moore, with, with very tearful uh, appeals and quite correctly saying that the power of prayer is needed in such situations, uh, points out that it's not just in COVID terms that uh, the British state in particular is now deciding that people can be uh, killed. Uh, th there seems to be an increasing amount of pseudo-medicine involved and uh, as a supporter who's brought this to my attention says uh, we are basing our appeal to Strasbourg on the British Constitution. We do not believe that the family courts have the power to declare that the removal of life support is not murder and they have actually petitioned the Queen and gone to Strasbourg. Strasbourg replied the Queen ignored, uh, saying you cannot actually take life. This is not a right to die case, as it's often cleverly presented. It's a right to life case. The ECHR, separate from the EU, and based on English common law, as Mr Moore says, uh, insists that we have the right to life. Um, so at the appointed time, uh, Pippa will be extubated, says the order. And he says that this this constitutes a civil law preservation of something removed in criminal law, which is the idea of executing people. And he says that in civil cases, the death sentence still exists. But nowadays we call it a judgment or order and we have no jury involved. And I would argue that much of that can be backcast onto what we have covered in the last half hour about COVID, because they're not even a family court, so-called, is involved, but someone even less competent than that, which is a health authority decision. As you can carried a moment ago, what's coming through is very Soviet. Now it is the guilty conscience speaking. We know we have a job to do, carry through the project with total unity. Uh, that, of course, is a, a, a sneaking admission that those in charge know that they may well, may well be involved in genocide, but they're simply order, following orders. We know where that leads. Uh, Alex, just to reinforce that point, we're also getting a lot of contact from members of the public who've got relatives um, in hospital, in intensive care as a result of vaccine adverse reactions. And what they're telling us is that uh, if you attempt to put pressure on the NHS to find out what the actual cause of the patient's problems, and particularly in relation to the vaccines, the next thing that's happening is that uh, the NHS is saying, oh, well, we, we suspect that the patient has got COVID and therefore you're not going to be able to visit. So they cut the link between the patient and the relatives. And once the patient is solely in the hands of the NHS, that patient, of course, can succumb to whatever, including death. And there is nobody to monitor what, the, what that particular NHS regime is doing. And if I sound passionate about this, I am, because the detail now given to us by NHS staff about these heinous acts is truly astonishing. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to join us there. And also, if you would be able to share any of our material you find on the various uh, social media platforms, that would be fantastic. Okay, well, I'm just uh, put up. We're delighted with the views that um, some of our recent work has got. This is uh, part three of No Smoke Without Fire. 
talking about vaccine adverse reactions. The commentary is based on the government's own statistics. So if you haven't seen that, please have a watch. But views up to 42,000. Uh, part four, which is out, which is, is long, but it needs to be long to get the information, is also up to 42,000 views. And we've had really tremendous feedback. A big thank you to the people who tuned in to watch uh, uh, the um, Mark Anderson interview. That's now up to 23,000 views. And uh, one of the eagle-eyed uh, viewers of that particular discussion uh, sent us this, which you should be interested in, of course, Mike, that the World Economic Forum has chosen Belfast, Leeds and London as global smart cities. And of course, this was, was the uh, key discussion with Mark Anderson about the rise for global government via, excuse me, via global cities. Well, I don't know about Leeds and London. I would imagine it's the same, but I know that Belfast is absolutely infested with common purpose uh, graduates and mentality and very much uh, for full of future leaders who would be very much into the World Economic Forum uh, mindset. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yes. And uh, also a big thank you to Alex. Um, Alex, you did an interview, which we decided to change it, an audio interview, which we decided to also put up on YouTube. Uh, that's got over 9,000 views. And uh, really, I'll hand over to you at that point. Well, the first thing it teaches us is that we have an order of magnitude more reach if we mirror our content to the main UK column channel YouTube on YouTube as long as we have it. And it's unfortunate that, well, OK, you get people who are Well, OK, well, yeah, there we are. That's, that's pretty unfortunate. That's a sign of the times yeah. that uh, ah, you're, we got him back. You're back, Alex. Sorry, we missed, we missed the last I was talking percent. about it. I was talking, I was giving people a mild ticking off because they don't listen to, for example, Mike's regular slide saying we're on BitChute and Odyssey because people posted under the YouTube upload of that. Uh, guys, are you on YouTube, uh, uh, BitChute and Odyssey? Well, yes, we are. Even if you follow us largely on YouTube, uh, please look at the links that are painstakingly pasted in a few hours after initial upload of every news episode because they provide the material links that people are bombarding us with questions for often. But uh, more to the point of the content, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war again uh, last autumn, October, over Nagorno-Karabakh. The backstory uh, is obtained by going to the podcast and following the links, going to ukcolumn.org slash international, where most of this content is hosted. But it's left a delicate situation where, as we go into with my guest Gevog Virats and I talking about the Nagorno-Karabakh war and the ceasefire, a lot seems to have been stitched up behind the scenes. Now, we entitled this episode uh, Guns, Gold and Gas, British Soft Power and a Pre-Cooked Ceasefire uh, because you'd be surprised that the supposedly anti-NATO pro-Russian uh, country involved, Armenia, actually has a couple of uh, apparently pro-British people involved. Nikol Pashinyan, the Prime Minister, is well known in certain circles for being close to Soros. Uh, but even the Prime Minister, Artur Sargsyan, uh, grew up in Britain and has a, never actually given evidence that he renounces British citizenship. Gevor goes into some detail about that and how actually it seems that Britain has even got its, its uh, mitts on, the, uh, on the, the country involved, which is further from the West. Uh, what's, the, uh, what's the result of this? Because of the sudden nature of the end of the war, something we go into in the podcast, uh, and because of the... Um, 
uh, way in which gentlemen's agreements were made between the Armenian and Azeri leaderships on the day when the Russians forced an end to the fighting, uh, you end up with a situation where 200 people found themselves taken POW or civilians who were not afforded the protections of the Geneva Convention in the southern part of the territory captured by Azerbaijan that day. And uh, just just mentioning that Defence One has got hold of this with an American angle, American support is needed. Well, that's made by the by. The main thing is it's talking about the prisoner of war uh, crisis and they're talking about this so there's, there's two slides on that if you go back one Mike uh, we see that there's nearly 200 prisoners of war and key to this is that civilian captives are involved Azerbaijan is basically saying these aren't regular soldiers they're terrorists a nice label they like to slap on anyone of course Azerbaijan is very pro-Turkish and pro-NATO in the piece and the, the follow-up is that even the, the American site Defense One is saying well this is obviously going to lead up to, to a hostage situation in which Azerbaijan gets more of what it wants uh, by uh, extorting matters uh, so this this war and its aftermath are far from over. Nothing about this has become public, and so we're trying to get through the murk by talking to Gavorg uh, and bringing out what the rather suppressed Armenian side of the information coming out of that war has to tell us. Uh, I have also put together uh, on our separate uh, series, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution here, uh, I've put together a whole playlist. So if people wish to subscribe to Eastern Approaches as a way of decentralizing in case our YouTube channel UK column d does take a hit you can go to Eastern Approaches I've decided uh, at 8 p.m. British time uh, for the next week uh, we will be uh, premiering the episodes of the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution that we have uh, gone through so far that Dissident's Guide has actually produced a large amount of interest and again it's a case of while it can be on YouTube it's, it's, it's getting an order of magnitude more views and listens than otherwise one of the very promising young commentators who's been inspired by that and whom I've spoken to uh, is Seb, who runs the extremely good channel Not the BBC, which deserves many thousands more subscriptions. He's come up with in his latest video, The Conditions for Freedom. In extra time, I think we'll be playing a clip of that. But he's, he's giving very similar thought now to why is it that Britain and the English-speaking countries have historically been freer? And he says, well, it's not in the water, it's not in the soil, it's because of rare opportunities and alignments that we had. Uh, he is, like many other people, uh, trying to get people onto subscription newsletters as we are now in case anything happens to our video content. So I'd heartily recommend people go to notbbc.news and sign up to his newsletter, which he calls a weekly dose of pith there from not the BBC. Um, okay, thanks, Alex. Uh, and uh, um, what is uh, Meet the Floggers? Meet the Flockers is a new uh, playlist, in fact, two play playlists on a channel which, like Graham Moore, who goes by Daddy Dragon, is basically having to re-establish itself because of all the hits people are taking. The uh, The channel that's up at the moment on YouTube is called Sheep Farm Studios, and this particular playlist is the more recent of the two called Meet the Flockers, and it goes into detail on the trio, the triumvirate that run uh, the country, as many people are saying now, uh, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, Professor Chris Whitty, and uh, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and I've uh, watched so far the uh, Hancock and the Witty episodes and they are an extremely good way of being Northern English cheeky chappies, uh, endearing to people but there's there's no comedy angle, they've really spliced together their footage extremely well to make their points, particularly about what Porton Down is, an institute that really chilled my blood when I visited as a British intelligence officer and I think they're really onto something there. Yes. Uh, now, on Friday's uh, programme, Patrick Henningsen was making the point that uh, Conservative Woman website is publishing some really interesting content at the moment. Uh, and, uh, well, today, uh, Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley has uh, published an article on Conservative Woman uh, website, Weasel Words and Broken Promises, A Roadmap to Endless Lockdown. And I have to say, uh, he is. this is a, an extremely strongly worded uh, article, so let's just run through uh, the content here. 
Um, he says, in all the nations that make up the United Kingdom, we are governed by people who, di who may differ on some aspects of policies, but who now share disreputable anti-democratic beliefs and whose goal appears to be the end of liberty. He says, lies and lockdown are their methods, loss of liberty their aim. Implicit in these three ideas is an ever-increasing state power grab, the smashing of small, medium and large businesses, and the denial of family life. Why are they doing this? The discredited Professor Neil Ferguson's interview with the Times provided one clue. They did it because they could. Uh, he said, he talks about PCR testing. He says, high cycle PCR testing, despite all its problems of false positives and the many scandals associated with it revealed here, was ramped up in order to deliver the cases needed to maintain restrictions. Uh, he also said the great and good fell for it. If the vaccine delivered freedom, they would have it. Not so. What became apparent was a coercion strategy uh, and that all the population would have to be vaccinated whether they needed it or not. Uh, the current offer in prospect is of some limited freedoms over the summer, brackets in return for compliance with the various experimental vaccines now being rolled out, uh, but with most control measures remaining, i.e. social distancing, which he describes as, as a disgusting term, masks, which he describes as a badge of compliance, not a medical necessity, and restrictions on events and on travel. Uh, he says, given the government's behavioral policy form, it's hard uh, not to guess at the intentions behind the conditional promises. Uh, one, to lull the people into a false sense of optimism and through the creation of artificial shortages, make them beg for the vaccine. Uh, and it all reminds him, he says, forcibly of conditions under communism in Eastern Europe before 1989. There's much more in the article. He goes into a lot more detail. I strongly recommend people read it and share it. But I just thought this was a really spectacular and I have to admit, quite unexpected position for somebody with the reputation of Jonathan Riley to, uh, to take. Well, Mike, I'm going to say I'm delighted. And I have said many, many times live publicly that uh, I've been appalled at the standard of the senior retired British military officers. Um, I labelled them cowards, I labelled them ignorant, and I stick by that with the great majority. But in this case, it appears that we now have one man who has decided to stand up and be counted alongside the nurses who are brave enough to come forward and say what's really going on. So we'll be interested to see whether Jonathan Riley um, is surrounded by colleagues in the coming days and weeks, or whether those uh, senior retired military officers still lack the guts to come forward. Um, Alex, very briefly, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it demonstrates to those who've come more from the intuitive end of the spectrum towards UK column material, as opposed to the intellectual background, you do need to study the claims about the background of democracy. Listen to the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution series. Listen to Seb on his Not the BBC uh, channel talk about these things, because uh, Lieutenant General, uh, General Riley is one good example. People are now admitting of his senior generation and rank uh, that actually those who control society through think tanks and funds uh, have put in through education and, and broadcasting uh, the memes into our head that say democracy good without ever defining democracy. And, you know, I'm getting into a bunch of material now, which will probably be more for uh, the series I'm doing with Brian on the psychological attack on the UK, that the Soviet tyrannies and the communist tyrannies suffered, if anything, from an excessive democracy. Many French commentators talk about this. Uh, giving the people what they want became the means 
to tyrannise them because the 51% could be induced to tyrannise the 49%. You need to get into the detail of this. Uh, people have got a gut feeling that all's not right, all is not well, but there's so many inversions that have been going on in our constitution. Don't shy away from this material. You need to understand the, the tricks that have been played. Um, yes, indeed. Right, now let's uh, come on to this uh, because we're going to have quarantine inspectors. Uh, everybody will be glad to know. Um, this is... Uh, as a result of, or this is about people that have uh, come back to the UK from international travel. Of course, it's still illegal to holiday overseas, uh, according to the government. Uh, but uh, those entering the country following international travel have to quarantine for a period of 10 days uh, at a managed quarantine site or at an address listed on their passenger locator form. Uh, and so the government is now funding a private company, uh, this one, uh, Mighty, uh, to uh, provide staff who are going to go around and uh, check that you are at your uh, registered address. Uh, and if you're not at your registered address or they can't prove that you're at your registered address, they are probably going to call the police because as the government makes the point, uh, they won't have any enforcement powers. But Alex, I find this uh, quite a, an interesting development because of course, uh, what this one of the effects of this is to uh, uh, sort of normalize the idea that private companies uh, have some kind of right to walk up to your door and demand to see an individual or uh, have, get some access beyond uh, your normal privacy rights. Yes, I mean, it's more for a discussion than for a sort of a one minute comment on the lunchtime news, but it's all part of the same concept of how much can we get away with. Brian goes into this in his Mark Anderson discussion on global cities. The clique forms, they want to play their tricks and, and pretend they have powers. It's decided at which level they can do it best, whether it be, in this case, a private company that's got no common law rights of access uh, or masquerading under law. That's all firmed up. And then the Constitution uh, is is set in those terms, you know, that this is the level at which this power resides. It's not the other way around. Theoreticians don't say uh, these powers should be central government, these should be local. No. First, it's decided where the clique is strongest and has most influence and where people are least informed. Then we're told that this is the best form of democracy. Uh, and so in this particular uh, era, uh, I was growing up hearing public-private partnerships are good, market liberalisation, cheer Thatcherism, if not, you're a, you're a pinko, right? So that's, that's another part of how the trick is played. Uh, you know, get categories clear in your mind. Private companies do not have common law rights of access, explicit or implicit. Uh, indeed. Right, let's move back to the uh, continent then. And uh, well, we're heading over to Germany. Uh, and uh, was this a German court ruling on testing? The third in a series, Mike, uh, 2020news.de for those who read German or can use machine translators like uh, Google Translate and DeepL.com, which is even better, should follow some of this stuff. Uh, this is uh, 2020 News is calling a, a, the latest Weimar judgment uh, from the Weimar family court, by the way, not the same Weimar court that ruled that masks were uh, for the general population in, in the streets uh, out of order. Weimar family court in this what it calls sensational judgment have decided that children cannot be required to be masked, socially distanced or tested. And again, go to uh, checktheevidence.com for the background on this by Andrew Johnson, his newsletter. Uh, he's got a very long and accurate translation of this, but people should read up on the detail because this is the first fruition I can see. This A little wave is coming through the Netherlands and Germany now of these cases, where in the continental civil law system, you have to argue your case a bit more theoretically than in Britain. But People are getting there. They they are forcing local judges, not all of whom are nobbled at lower levels, to listen to experts saying PCR tests are not fit for purpose. They are useless. They're frauds. And uh, judges in some cases... Yeah. 
Oh dear. Yes, we're definitely having technical <laughs> problems today. That's that's really unfortunate. Well, either a gremlin or it's 77 Brigade. Yes, right? that's I'm, the option sure in what's... Britain in 2021. Yes. Uh, well, look, let's uh, let's move on to uh, to this. Uh, well, if we can get to the the point, we'll come back to Alex if he. Are you back? No, he's I'm not. Back. I don't know what's happening. I don't know oh. what's happening to my internet there today. Uh, but yes, I'm back if you're able to hear me. Um, uh, the, the general point is there's a wave of case, cases coming through the Netherlands and Germany uh, in which family courts and other lower courts are hearing the evidence and that there is no expert uh, case at all for PCR testing uh, to be implemented or social distancing or masking. And uh, courts are taking this seriously, particularly on the basis that children are suffering very real and disproportionate damage. Uh, so under the human rights framework that they've been brought up in, they at least have the, 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 the quite correct understanding that this cannot be done. Uh, okay. On the Philippines, uh, I believe. Yes, let's move on to the Philippines. So the Manila Times uh, is uh, mentioning uh, you know, similar doubts now. Yen Macaventa, uh, thanks to the viewer who sent this, as always, um, is a, a regular commentator in the Manila Times, one of the main new English language uh, news outlets for the Philippines. And he says that behind the COVID case surge are debatable policy decisions. So uh, he goes into a little more detail on that. He talks about quarantining the healthy, uh, being uh, out of order for a whole year now. This is the, the acronym on screen is the, uh, the Philippine equivalent that every country seems to have now of some advisory group that fronts up as a task force to tell elected government what to do. So is that, uh, is that talks... like the Filipino equivalent sage? Yes, very much right. so, and, and a, bit, a, bit, a bit more like a you know a task force than sages. But uh, so uh, he talks out that he talks about how these people haven't studied the main uh, the main papers on the subject. Uh, he goes on to talk about the credibility of the Philippines because, of course, uh, British and other sources liked to take a, a jab at the Philippines. They look at the political leadership of a country and then say uh, this this country is not running running its COVID very well uh, because it's not falling in line with us. And if you go back one slide there, there's uh, uh, just one uh, conclusion about uh, his submission. He submits that the daily count of new COVID cases will immediately start going down once the IATF EID stops testing the asymptomatic. And if it also slows down quarantine of the healthy and does more to re help revive the economy, the COVID case count will plummet, he says. I think he's... Uh, Onto a case there, but he's, he, this is just one, one more example of many countries and many commentators now saying the same thing. Back to Europe, El Mundo, one of the main newspapers in Spain, talks about uh, a policeman who's not named in Alicante in the east of the country, uh, who's been suspended uh, uh, on full pay, uh, sorry, without pay for a year and seven months to change his mind um, for not, carry, not wearing the mask. And he says that the mask is... Uh, an, an, an attack on his health. There he is holding up the uh, decision in uh, in question. I'm deliberately leaving his quotation on the next slide in Spanish so that we don't get the usual flack for bad language. But Mr. Unnamed Alicante Policeman in a, in a very manful performance in the video says, uh, well, I'll translate as much as I can without offending. Uh, this this red line, as he, well, he doesn't quite call it, but the, the red line he's decided to, to stand on uh, is what separates us from being country and being una mierda. And it separates us from being, uh, on the one hand, from being policemen, and on the other hand, from being uh, obeyers of illegal orders. So he says if he has to stand alone, he will. Very much like your NHS lady at the beginning uh, of the segment. Over the border in uh, Portugal, in mid-Portugal, in Coimbra, 
thanks again to another viewer to sending this, for sending this Noticias de Coimbra, one of the local papers there, is talking about, look at the number of police cars that turned up for this, the Portuguese police turning up to stop people planting trees. Uh, there's a lot of such cases. We, we've seen tree cutting, of course, over the, um, the whole of the Britain, uh, Sheffield most widely covered. Um, but in this case, it, it's a, a bit of an obscure argument between um, groups and the council over what kinds of trees should be planted in land designated for a golf course. But the overpowering uh, turn up of uh, of the uh, the police there indicates, in comparison, in in in, uh, in 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 comparison with other pieces that we have had from Portugal recently about zoning and a compulsory purchase. Uh, indicates that uh, I don't know whether you have a bit, bit of video to accompany that, Mike. But uh, you people can. No, no, I don't, I, I don't have that. But but we can see quite clearly the number of police cars there are already, and then a van turns up as well. And uh, yeah. how many? Do you know how many people were arrested? Um, the number of seven is at the back of my mind. I can't be definitive. People can find that easily enough on Facebook and Twitter or the website of Noticias de Coimbra and use an auto translator again. But the point I'm making is that Portugal has become a bit of a bellwether for. Uh, what some commentators are now calling a, you know, a, a land grab, basically, starting with the poorer fringes of southern Europe and equivalents owned in other parts of the world, buying up the land, making sure that agriculture is only done in, by, in designated ways by the, the corporations and big players that are, that are uh, favoured. OK, well, look, uh, let's, let's quickly come back to the UK. And, uh, well, there's a private uh, members bill also related to trees has gone in. And I thought uh, this would interest people, particularly people who have been campaigning on 5G and so on. Uh, because uh, this is a private member's bill uh, from uh, Chris Clarkson, Conservative. Uh, maybe people might like to suggest that uh, there's some support for this from other Conservative MPs and Labour MPs as well, because private member's bills that don't get the support of the government, of course, don't tend to make very much progress. Uh, and this is called the Tree-Lined Streets Bill, and he's, he is demanding that uh, uh, there is a tree planting programme in the streets uh, of our towns and cities uh, as, um, you know, streets refurbished and new builds and so on. Uh, and of course, this sort of goes against this policy of uh, clearing trees uh, for uh, 5G and other places. Well, I, I would guess this is the SOP. The trees are being cleared for 5G. Sheffield had the trees slaughtered, those beautiful avenue trees. Uh, I, I would guess this is part of the SOP to the public, that we're not really doing this because we've got a bill. Uh, maybe I'm just cynical. Uh, yeah, I, th I think that that's maybe a little unfair because there there are some people sort of speaking out against that policy, and and, and so anyway, he, there's some support perhaps needs to be put uh, out for that. Now let's move on to NHS data, uh, and uh, of course a few weeks ago we were talking about uh, this because there had been some misunderstanding uh, about uh, whether it, there was a deadline required on the 31st of March for people to um, opt out of NHS data and its sharing. Uh, and the point we were making, if you remember, of course, uh, was that actually you can opt out of data sharing by the NHS at any point. The reason that there was a, a 2021 31st of March deadline was because uh, companies that would, had been otherwise su supposed to uh, respect that opt out um, by March last year had been given an extra year to do so as a result of COVID. But the caveat on this was uh, this statement on the uh, NHS data website. Uh, that to help the NHS respond to coronavirus, your information may be used for coronavirus research purposes, even if you've chosen not to share it. So it's an opt-out that isn't really an opt-out. Um, well, there's uh, been some work done here. Um, here we go. A report putting good into practice, a public dialogue, no less, on making public benefit assessments when using health 
and care data. This has been published today. Let's have a look at what it says. Today, we're publishing the findings of a dialogue with more than 100 members of the public about how to make sure health and care data is used in ways that benefit people and society. The National Data Guardian will use the insights to develop guidance to support people making decisions about access to data for research and innovation. So uh, 65, 67 million people in the country and they asked 100 for comment. Uh, so what is this? A, That's called a sample. They call that a sample. Well, but it's it's done in the format of some kind of people's assembly type of thing, a sortition type of thing. So the public dialogue was designed and managed by deliberative engagement specialist Hopkins Van Mill and supported by ScienceWise. Uh, it involved 112 participants recruited in a 50-mile radius from four locations, Great Yarmouth, Stockport, uh, Plymouth, and Reading. Did you know anything about it? No. No, I didn't know anything no. about it. So I'm wondering how they chose these 112 well, presumably uh, participants. Because they were going to give them the answers they wanted, but that's uh, well, well, also a very cynical response. No, it may, no, it's really not. So let's come on to that. Each partition <laughs> attended five online dialogue events. Uh, with the opportunity to interact and discuss the topic with policymakers and specialists before coming to their own conclusions and recommendations. The dialogue was independently evaluated by a company called 3KQ. Uh, now, the key point here is uh, there were five online dialogue events. People were given the opportunity to interact and discuss with policymakers and specialists. Who chose the policymakers? And the specialists. And, uh, whoever chose them, they would have been chosen because they also knew how to use Delphi technique or other psychological attacks to get uh, techniques to get the answers that they wanted in the first place. Indeed. Mark. So the dialogue was independently evaluated by 3KQ. Well, let's just have a brief look at 3KQ. I don't have time to go into detail on this now, but this is the key slide or section of this graphic at the top animates, and there's more. There's other key questions there, but I thought this was really the key question. What outcomes are required? This is what 3KQ is about. It's providing you with the outcomes that you require. And when you look at, when you do a search for 3KQ on your search engine of choice, you will find that they have government contract after government contract after government contract for running these types of, of things, these types of so-called consultations. And it's all about getting the outcome that's required. Yeah, so they're delivering the goods for the government. The government says we need some help getting our particular policy in place. So presumably you bring in 3KQ to use the uh, the manoeuvring techniques in order to achieve that. Um, and uh, Alex, lots of uh, language in the press release for this stakeholder, this stakeholder, that this of course is the, the latest uh, buzzword uh, that's come out of the Great Reset uh, from Klaus Schwab because we're now into state stakeholders and stakeholder engagement. Um, what we're seeing here is, is this form of participatory democracy that we've been warning about for many years. Uh, comes under many, many names. Sortition is one of them. Uh, the idea that you have, well, you take what's potentially a good idea, the grand jury, and you take it into a sort of statutory framework and you put a framework around it and limit the the investigatory capabilities of it, and you put certain uh, certain key people in front of you to provide the evidence on, upon which you're going to make your decisions and give your advice. Um, it's it's not the best way to come to decisions. No, it's called stacking the jury, isn't it, or stacking the uh, the panel that decides things, and also having the uh, the, uh, the the rights behind the scenes to brief people and uh, press the right buttons to make sure that they don't consider certain options as as even 
possibilities. And it's, dare I say, yet another reason to follow ukcolumn.org slash constitution follow our podcasts as they go up there. Uh, they are they go through to SoundCloud. There are there are links provided in my introductions to each of the articles that give chapter and verse on some of these these issues. And um, you know it's it's one of the ways in which we are lied to about what democracy is because at this point people are told, well a, a room full of people decided that's democratic in it, you know, for for all 70 million of us or however many there are in, in, in practice in Britain now. Um, Another thing that's the, the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution series has pointed out in the most recent episode, the second half of part five, is that Parliament is not sovereign and that the courts needs to check it. And when I was just off air briefly a moment ago, the, the slide we missed was me talking about how three different German federal states now, Bavaria, Thuringia and Saxony, Anhalt, have all seen courts do what British courts used to do. Uh, until the 1940s, uh, tell the, uh, which is to tell the Parliament that they were acting beyond their powers uh, in uh, requiring certain things, uh, or indeed uh, executive agencies like schools. So there is now a wave uh, in Germany and the Netherlands and other countries around this part of Europe of courts uh, stepping up to the plate, to use that slightly hackneyed idiom, and, and doing their job. But in the Westminster system, the courts, uh, the people who run them now, have been told, because of democracy, we cannot do this. Uh, we know, and as you're pointing out there, the definition of democracy slips and slides from one thing to the next. The latest wave being stakeholder democracy or participatory democracy in which a room full of people decide for the nation. Yes. OK, well, look, uh, I think this is this is our end graphic uh, today, Alex. Uh, shocking. It is shocking. <laughs> This this, uh, this is as reported by the Daily Snail on uh, Midsummer's Day 2052. Breaking news, uh, the, the credit goes to Pete D. Jackson on Twitter. Breaking news, President Johnson and General Hancock announced that the 735th variant of the COVID-19 virus that took hold 32 years ago still ravages the country with 53 cases and 14 deaths. They claim the N Gates S hospitals are overwhelmed with 23 beds occupied. We can see no end to this, claims Johnson, whilst Hancock added, get the jab, after he noted that 968 million doses had now been administered. Um, I have to say, I don't think Boris Johnson looks that good today, never mind in 2053. But... I, th I think he's ravaged by something himself. Yes. Well, we'll leave it there. Yep, we, we, we are getting to the point... Uh, it's difficult to know what to select out of the information that we see and the information coming forward to put into the news. So we encourage all of our viewers and listeners, if you've got information, page, um, documents, papers, uh, evidence that you think is critical and you want to share it, please do. And uh, we will continue to push out as much as we can. But it does seem to us that there is uh, something stirring in the belly of the NHS beast because so many people are coming forward and we take it as a great compliment that whistleblowers are coming to the UK column to talk about what they really know. Uh, we'll be back in 10 minutes as usual for uh, some extra if, uh, if you're on the UK column live stream and uh, otherwise back at 1pm as usual on Friday. Indeed. Okay. Bye-bye.